try and get Marshall in here. Whenever you say Marshall, I think you're about to say my name, which is really interesting. Yeah, it starts, yeah. you know, it's like auto-completing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Welcome to episode 455 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm your host. Oh, come on. I'm your host, Brian Lovett. <laughs> and I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, we have a special guest today. We do. It's been a long, long time since we've had yeah. a guest on the pod. I, I was nervous we would be really rusty. I think it went really well. Yeah. Well, it's amazing what happens when you let a smart person talk for a long time. Yeah, yeah that was the secret is just <laughs> don't interrupt March and <laughs> yeah. Witchery, our guests. <laughs> uh, but before we get into that, a huge shout out to Catch. Catch asks you, dear listener, why did you become a freelancer? All you freelancers out there, was it for freedom? flexibility? Well, it probably was not because you wanted to manage your own health insurance, taxes, and retirement. Who wants to do any of that? Well, not me. Well, here to absolve you from all of that tedium is Catch. They can do all that for you. They offer benefits and personalized payroll for the self-employed. Make sure you're covered for the year 2023 at catch.co slash design details slash health to renew your coverage or find a better plan. If you are a freelancer, Go to catch.co slash design details slash health. Thank you, Catch, for supporting the episode. Thanks, Catch. We also have some new very important pixels. Hey. Slipping on into this February hot tub. Welcome uh-huh. in, welcome in, Ash K, Andrew Wandiga, Albert, Sasha Ward, and Kelly Kim. Yeah, that's a good Hey-o. time to be getting into this hot tub. It is chilly out there. If it you're is in chilly, especially if, you, if you're in the Northeast or in that cold snap. Mm, bet you wish you had some juicy design details content to keep you warm. For just a buck a month. For just a buck a month. If you didn't know, we are a listener support podcast. That happens on Patreon. Patreon.com slash design details where for the aforementioned $1 per month. One doll hair. One doll hair. You get access to bonus content. We call it the sidebar. Sidebar, sidebar. And the great thing about being a Patreon supporter on interview days is the sidebar is, in this case, a bonus interview. We we thought, oh, we'll do some bonus questions. Yeah, just a couple, you know, just tack them on the end there. (laughs) And ended up just going uh, deeper and longer on all sorts of topics. Uh, So if you are... Listening to this, it means you are not supporting us on Patreon, which means you're only going to catch half of our conversation today with our special guest. So if you want to catch the full interview, go to patreon.com slash design details and support us for just a buck a month. It's just a buck a month. All right. Marshall. Yes. Interview today. Let's keep this short and sweet. We're catching up with Martin Witcher. He is a designer at Figma, currently managing the design team, working on the editor. He's also a programmer, a writer, a typographer, and now an author. Yeah. Marchin is self-publishing a book all about keyboards called Shift Happens. It's on Kickstarter at the time. People are hearing this, and we had him on the podcast to talk about all of the above. His book, the creation of it, 
the design details, dare I say, of not only writing the book, but also uh, laying it out, printing it, and creating the website for it. And we talk about creativity and playfulness and so much more. So without further ado, here's our interview with Martin Witchery. All right, Martin, welcome to the podcast. You're our first Hello. guest in a long, long, a long time. time. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Good to have you. How do we start yeah. these? I guess you should tell us a little about yourself for people who have not had the good fortune of encountering you on the internet <laughs> or at a conference or watching one of your uh, YouTube videos. Who are you? Why are you here? I'm um, Marcin, uh, <laughs> I'm Marcin Vihary. Uh, I'm ostensibly a designer to the extent anybody's a designer, you know, it's sort of like a designer with a bunch of kind of different tendrils and, and, and extensions. Um, I'm originally from Poland. I moved to Silicon Valley a long time ago and I worked uh, at a bunch of places like Google, Medium and currently Figma. And I've always been a designer, as I mentioned, but it's sort of been like an engineering designer, really, in many ways. I actually studied computer science and only then I kind of realized, oh, I'm actually doing this other thing. So, um, and at Figma right now, I'm more of a design manager. So sort of kind of moving in that direction. Nice. And uh, I guess that intersection of being a technical designer can often be like limbo where you might not even know what team you fit in on or I don't know in my experience it's like I like to code but I I don't know if I'm comfortable <laughs> pushing code to production at Facebook for example um where do you fall on that spectrum or how have you navigated being in this sort of in between hybrid type skill set is this uh the should designers code part of the interview <laughs> um yeah this is yeah, this is the recurring segment we do with all of our guests <laughs> should uh-huh. designers code yeah, you know what? I'm going to answer sort of in a roundabout way. I, I'm not allowed and I shouldn't be allowed to ship code to production, maybe with some <laughs> okay. exception of like a very front-endy code. Like I, I think I have tendencies of a prototyper much more so and a kind of a hacker. Like I'm just going to do whatever it takes to make something happen. Like I think my, my kind of most infamous example was the underlines at Medium in whenever that was, where I was just like, I'm just going to do something like that's not going to be allowed but I just want to have a good looking underline, underling. And, you know, that's can be kind of beautiful in some ways, I think, and it can be frightening in others. So I think the core of my existence as this sort of designer is constant communication with actually real engineers and kind of negotiating, like, am I close to breaking the rules or am I actually, you know, is what I'm doing allowed or inspiring or is what I'm doing disallowed and whatnot? And, and I think that's like, at Figma in particular, I, I like kind of doing both ways, which is also having engineers just make a lot of design decisions and talking about that and talking about how we feel about that and vice versa. So I think I love that. I love like even we haven't started talking about my book, but even for my book, I wrote a lot of scripts and a lot of kind of adding code to typesetting, all sorts of various experiments, the, the 3D preview on my website. So it's always sort of code for creative reasons. And I think that's why... I don't know if that's engineering technically. Yeah. It's always code for the purpose of design, which is why I start with designer as a title. Yeah, my headcanon of you from what I know is you're you're like a, a hacker in the philosophical sense, right? Like you unblock yourself. Um, it's so clear looking through your, your side projects and your website. Like this is playful. This is fun. 
Uh, at least that's my impression. Does that sound true to you? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of using all of these technologies. And, and I think JavaScript has been like that for a long time, right? Like JavaScript is the go-to thing to do amazing things, whether it's web or many other things. I One thing, for example, I was really proud of is that I did this one-site project when I rented a movie theater and I did an edit of this old Polish show and I did subtitle it and whatnot. So, you know, that's like pretty normal, but then I put it all in Safari and we projected it in the movie theater for like three hours, which is both kind of amazing that this is possible, right? I added some things like like a clock and and the things that JavaScript allowed me to do in CSS, but also then you have this scary realization that everybody's looking at the browser and, <laughs> you know, it's like, when is the alert window going to pop up or when is uh-huh. something bad going to happen? So that's sort of the downside, like the, the web is always fed little, like fragile in a way. Interesting. So you, you manage the editor team at Figma. Is the browser still scary to you? Or <laughs> it's still scary to me in, in the sense that you're talking about. I'm, I'm curious how far you have gone to make it less scary, or do you think we're over that hurdle sort of as an industry? There's sort of two ways to take your question. I'm going to try to do both. So one is, you know, are people okay with doing stuff in a browser and not feeling like, you know, it's somehow risky, right? And I think that's, I think we maybe crossed the threshold. I remember like when I was at Medium, which must have been like eight years ago, we were still wondering like what happens when somebody presses command S, you know, or control S and how do we sort of make people feel comfortable? It was like, no, 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 don't worry about it. This is how to saving. Figma used to have that too. We sort of dial it down uh, because it's been a while. But there's also this other side, which is how does a browser feel to me as a person working on Figma or on this complex tool? And it's a really complicated relationship because... It's in some ways it's beautiful, right? Like it's it allows us to do, you know, to give things to people like far away and immediately, right? And and use some of those paradigms, like there's a link for everything, or you don't have to install anything, you know, like pretty obvious stuff by now. But then we're also kind of like at the mercy of what browsers allow us to do, and it's never enough. It's sort of like a miracle that Figma actually exists, given sort of, you know, <laughs> the, the the sort of assembly code and, and WebGL and all of the stuff that powers it. But we constantly are aware of those limitations, like, for example, with copy and paste or fonts or a bunch of things. And we actually constantly in conversations with browser vendors, which I assume every big app is, you know, because uh, hopefully it's it's helpful for both sides. But sometimes I, I kind of dream of like, oh, if only we were a native app, it would have been so much easier, right? Like we just <laughs> ship international keyboard support yeah. and it was just so much more painful because we don't have all of the data or all the information that native apps do, right? So, so whether you treat it as an exciting thing and an interesting set of challenges, like the underlines at Medium used to be, or whether it's sort of scary and annoying, it really depends on the day sometimes. But I think I'm mostly on the side that's still kind of exciting to me. And it's always been exciting. And maybe that's just like how I'm wired. Maybe that's part of the challenge that, you know, constantly proving that browsers can do more than what they were meant to do, which I know some people philosophically oppose, right? Like some people say, like, we shouldn't have asked browsers to be apps or like app vehicles. Somehow we lost the way, right? Browsers should have been just like engines of looking at documents. To me, like if I see like a game in a browser or some really interesting application, that makes me excited. So maybe that's that's just always been the case. 
It seems like the tension generally for my side is always we ramp up the hardware capabilities of our machines. We have these incredible laptops, processors, we have GPUs. And so we're able to throw more at the hardware. And what we've ended up doing largely as an industry is we just throw lots of Electron apps at that hardware where each one individually might be okay, but you end up with this stack of browsers running on your computer at all times. I don't know, like what's your relationship there with the tension between what you should be doing to be a responsible browser application versus, oh, wow, Apple just shipped the M2. How can we go turbo now, right? Yeah, we've had a bunch of conversations about that, including, you know, as a designer at Figma, like what is my responsibility to like not have an M1 so I can feel Figma the way (laughs) like a lot of other people feel Figma? Same with like non-retina display, same with, you know, a a bad trackpad, all of those kind of things, you know, so, so that's always been a tension. I think for me, you know, honestly, I think my philosophy has always been pragmatic and oriented about like, what can we give to the users? Right. If a user wants an access to a local font because they want to use it for the designs, like, yeah, I, I, I'm awaiting an API from Chrome and I, they're actually working on one. We're actually beta, test, beta testing it. But like, I also want to do something faster than that because, you know, people want fonts. So I think that's often how I think about that. And may, I, don't know, I don't know if that's like the right approach, but I think part of what I learned over the years is uh, you can have your approach and then you surround yourself with people who have like other opinions and then you just talk about it constantly. And I think that's what we're doing sometimes at Figma. And even at Medium, it was a similar thing. Yeah, it's funny. All of the examples you bring up seem to revolve around typography and clearly you have a love <laughs> for that world. Uh, I think my first real encounter with you was at Config back in 2020, pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. You gave your, I don't know, do we call it now famous talk? about typography in Figma, but this is like, this is your thing. How did you fall into this well of being so interested in typography, typography on the web and how we, I don't know, make underlines beautiful. What is it about? Yeah, I've always, like there's something happened and I became interested in typography. I think for me, like a lot of my career has been kind of looking a little bit backwards and seeing what are the dotted lines and kind of like extend them to the future, right? So, So at some point, you know, I've always been interested in typography in some way. The 8-bit fonts, you know, back when I was a kid, I made like a little editor to draw fonts. I don't know why. I love the British covers, uh, Mark Farrow, Peter Seville, you know, this mostly Helvetica, honestly, but just sort of the stark, um, you know, I love public transit typography. And I don't know, it's just like always been around. But I think for me, especially around Google and after at Medium, I realized that you know, there's the saying, you know, take two things you're passionate about and an intersection of those two things is how you provide value to the world. And for me, there was typography and some version of engineering or some version of like front end or some version of uh, coding. It's a space that's incredibly potent and amazing. And, you know, it's not occupied in a grand scheme of things by too many people, right? So for example, at Medium, I actually ended up working a lot on the tooling and the processes on the engineering side that power typography. And at Figma, it's like 10x more complicated, you know, because as you can imagine, like fonts are incredibly complicated. Fonts have been around forever. They have all of these baggages, all of this history. Again, beautiful or terrifying history, depending on how you look at it. 
<laughs> and, uh-huh. and you know, and, and if you use Figma, most of the time you don't care, right? And most of the time, like, or at least some of the time people blame us for maybe our deficiencies in the phone metadata or an older understanding of phone metadata, some version of that. And I think that's fair, right? Like people just want to use their font and it's on us to sort of provide this translation layer of like, you know, is Figma the app from the 1990s? Is it the website? How does the line height work? All of that kind of stuff. So I've just found it interesting to operate at this intersection, right? Where, where there's like endless puzzles about why, why is this value this? Or why is this, this new font behave differently than the old font? But ultimately it's sort of, you know, allowing people to do what they want with fonts. And I think that's the end goal. I don't know. So I've always like, I think, yeah, since, since the underlines, I've, I've seen a good reception for that. And I think honestly, like if I, if this book that I'm writing about keyboards right now is ever done, which hopefully it will be done this year, I actually kind of want my next book to be about like this intersection of typography and front end, which is, I think, kind of amazing. And I, I, I hope like if you talk about it enough, you can pull people from both design side and the engineering side because there's this sort of common overlap. You know, there's there's a difference between being interested in something and, and doing it for your job and getting paid for it and then deciding to embark on a book publishing journey to the end of the world where now, what is it, 1,200 pages? Yeah. 1,300 photographs, 1,200 pages, 42 chapters, <laughs> two volumes. You are writing a book about keyboards. How do you make this leap? Did it, yeah. did it just become that big on accident, or did you have this big of a vision when you started writing? It was like a gradient in a way that is actually helped me a lot because so there's like 15 origin stories of this book and it's sometimes hard to know which one matters more or or less but basically I've always wanted to write a book like my mom was a librarian like books have felt like one of the like most noble things you can put out there right so I've always carried it with me Um, for a while I carried this in Polish and then I kind of switched countries and languages and so there was there but you know it it really felt like really really far away for many many years and then eventually like i started writing in english i started feeling more comfortable with that i started realizing i have some things to share but i think it actually funnily enough started this particular book started with um i wrote some medium articles about typewriters Uh, medium actually had some typewriters in their offices it's kind of a decoration because you know it's a publishing company and I started looking at them. It's like, oh, this is interesting. Those keys are in different places or they have different names. And I wrote one article about the Turkish typewriter. And that ended up being surprisingly popular. And I wrote one more about typewriter typography. And, and the same thing happened. And then one kind of Christmas break, I, I thought I would write maybe five or six articles in this, in this, I think it was called Key Stories, like kind of a temporary name, you know. And then I wrote one or two, and then I just counted the words. I was like, wait, this is starting to approach a book length. So I sort of walked myself into this situation, even though I've always wanted to write a book, even though this thing was staring me in the face. I walked myself backwards to math in this. And and of course, the joke was on me because I think the original tally was like 80,000 words, and the book ended up being 260. So yes, I did eventually arrive at this almost like a fractal of a subject. You know, it turns out that keyboards are complicated. They've been around for 150 years, almost exactly. They've served many reasons. Like, it's sort of even hard to remember some of them. And so, yeah, we, we had to, myself and my editor had to cut it down at some point. And it still became this, this 
huge, like two volume operation. But yeah, so it sort of surprised me in a way, like how big it's become. Although I think one advice that I got from, from actually from Craig Maud, if you recognize the name, um, great kind of champion of this project and, and a, a personal friend of mine, he said something like, if you're writing a book, it's good to find a subject that just comes back to you because you're going to have days or weeks or sometimes months that you don't want to look at it. And the difference between maybe giving up and not giving up is whether this the subject itself has energy enough to kind of come back and haunt you and sort of like, and I realized that keyboards are that to me, that I've done things around keyboards for, for years now, uh, even before that, that medium story, right? I've done little experiments here and there. So that ended up being true, like that whenever I th- ran out of energy, because it is a huge thing, I the keyboards found me again <laughs> in some yeah. strange way or some strange little story or somebody sent me something. I was like, wait, no, I'm still, God damn it, I'm still excited about this. Well, I mean, you can't, it's not like you can escape it, right? Like I imagine you're on a call at work and you look down at your hands and you're like, God damn it. <laughs> there it is yeah. again. <laughs> They're everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I mean, like there's no shortage of <laughs> discussions about keyboard shortcuts at Figma, right? So even if oh, I yeah. didn't want to, that's sort of become a thing at work as well. I'm the keyboard guy in like more than one sense of the word, I guess. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about the journey here through the book because, well, there's two parts I want to talk about. I want to talk about the book itself because, okay, there's actually three things I want to talk about. I want to talk about the content of the book. The second thing I want to talk about is the design of the book. And the third thing I want to talk about is the website for the book because across the board, beautiful. It's an incredible aesthetic that you've put together and even beyond that, created something interactive and and well-composed. So maybe let's start with the content of the book. Uh, How do you start tackling a subject like keyboards? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And, you know, it's funny because I'm happy with the book right now. I'm happy how it all comes together. But, you know, I've never done this before. I'm not a professional historian, right? So it's always been kind of a strange... This whole book was this strange kind of like, I'm doing it my own way and let's see what happens. And, you know, sometimes I got stopped in my tracks. Sometimes I got encouraged. And so I think for me was basically, I spent about a year just compiling like a database of everything I could find about keyboards. Uh, There's this really strange piece of software called Devon Thing, which is a super old school app. It's like really amazing finder. You can just throw a lot of things at it. And Stephen Johnson, who, who's one of my favorite um, nonfiction writers, he, he wrote about it a long time ago and it stuck with me. And so I just like compiled a lot of things. And at some point I decided, okay, that's enough time. I'm just going to do like pattern matching, right? Like I'm going to see, uh, you know, there's sort of like two parts. One is what are the stories that are that seem exciting, right? Like what are the stories that I found that people would love? And then, obviously, there are some keyboards that I need to talk about because they're too important, right? The iPhone keyboard maybe, you know, is the keyboard that changed a lot of things, right? It obviously has to happen. The Model M, this electric, you know, a bunch of those kind of things that... So from for those keyboards, I started looking at, can I wrap any stories around them, right? Because I need to talk about them anyway. I shouldn't have a boring chapter just because it happens to be an important keyboard. And, and eventually I arrive at this sort of complex, like it's chronological. It starts literally 150 years. Well, it's actually more because they finished 150 years ago. So it starts like 157 years ago with this little demo that's just like a, it's like a, it's like a tech demo that one person did. What if this looked like this? And just moved on from that. 
And it's sort of, in theory, it's chronological, right? So it spans like 100 years on typewriters, 50 years on kind of more modern computers. But there are all sorts of different kind of cutting and slicing it. You know, there's, there's a chapter about crimes and crimes. They're cool typewriters crimes. They're cool computer crimes that involve keyboards, right? There's chapter about portable keyboards, which is so... I think it's actually fun. It's not boring. Uh, my goal, one of the goals for the book is just like, don't make it boring. So it tries to be comprehensive, right? So you learn about typewriters, you learn about computers, you learn about like everything in between, which is actually really interesting to me. And the other thing that I, was very, very important to me, and it's actually funny because it was actually inspired by public speaking more than anything else, which is uh, I've been giving talks for a while and like everybody, I developed a style of some sort. And my style was like, my slides are going to kind of complement what I'm talking about, right? They're kind of like, they're, they're not going to repeat. Uh, sometimes they're going to be a visual for what I'm talking about. Sometimes the slides could be like an almost like a secondary track that's not acknowledged, but you can kind of look at it. You know, it's sort of like right brain, left, left brain kind of thing. And so it ended up being very important for me for the book to also be visually interesting. And that ended up being an incredibly long and, and scary journey, actually, because there aren't very many books, I think, like what I wanted to have because there, there's a lot of trade books with, that focus a lot of words, you know. Maybe there's like an insert with photos, full color somewhere, you know. And there's coffee table books that obviously um, focus a lot on visuals. And often the words are sort of secondary, right? Like you buy the book for the visuals. And for me, I kind of wanted both <laughs> in a way that ended up happening, it's basically 50-50 of the area is words and photos. And you can buy the book for the words. You can buy the book for the photos. Hopefully you do both. But the photos sort of participate in storytelling. Um, so like, there's no photo that's sort of just there because it looks cool. Um, and, and so that, that was sort of like my kind of design part of, of writing the book, which is I think that the form factor and the way that the typography and the photos interact was like maybe even frighteningly more important to me than to a lot of people, which I got that feedback from the publishers who just rejected me all the time and from printers who were just like, wow, you're really like, you're really going deep on this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's important to me. <laughs> you're like, don't worry about it. I'll see you in five years. How long did this yeah. take you, by the way? When did you start? Um, yeah, it's always hard to say because uh, so technically it was Christmas 2015 when those okay. like early medium stories happened. Yeah, yeah. But this effort was only full time for like one and a half years because I took a sabbatical. Okay. Wow. Um, yeah. And then before and after it was sort of like on the side of a full time job. Got it. Okay. Okay. That helps. Um, I want to get into the actual composition of the book. But first, you've clearly done a lot of historical spelunking. Were there any stories or as you kind of reflect back on the book, was there a story or, I don't know, a particular keyboard or invention or inventor that stands out in your mind that was surprising or you fell in love with? Yeah, the, the one that I, I was just absolutely delighted by was, um, so one of the co-inventors of laser in the 60s, developed this, what he called laser eraser, which was supposed to be this device. There's this evocative photo of him with this way too big laser pointing at the paper, and it was meant to erase typos. It was just, you know, a laser to, if you type a wrong letter, you could erase it and type the right one. And it's funny because when you kind of look at this story, and I went to the archives at Stanford University, and I read a lot of the letters and how they try to, you know, bring it to market, how they try to sell it, how they try to kind of make it smaller and cheaper because, you know, they only had one prototype. 
it starts looking like somebody's folly, right? Like, yeah, of course, the guy who co-invented the laser, like he wants to do everything with the laser, right? Like, of course, he's going to try to find a use case for the laser. And to some extent, maybe that's true. But like by the time when I was uh, when I was reading this, I already had like a lot of that other research that I've done, which we all forgot about, which is how hard typos used to be. Like we don't think twice about backspace today because you know we've had it for four years. Uh, with computers, it's almost like easier to delete something than to keep them alive, right? That's kind of how computers work. But typos were actually like a huge problem for like I don't know eighty years of typing. Like you, you know, you had whiteout, you had other quote unquote technologies and they never worked very well, right? You've always had, like, if you made a typo at the bottom of the page, it's over. you're doomed. Yeah, if you made toast. a typo, yeah, when you yeah. like have multiple carbon copies, what do you do, right? Like, like a lot of typing in the 20th century was retyping. And in Western countries, it was mostly women just retyping. Every time a boss wanted like one word change, they had to retype over and over again. So it's easy to look at this laser eraser as this sort of like strange invention, you know, like sort of using nuclear weapons to to carve tunnels in mountains or, <laughs> you know, all sorts of, you know, like Star Wars uh-huh. in a sort of, um, you know, Ronald Reagan sense. But it was also like a problem that needed to be solved, right? And 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 the funny thing is just like computers just came around and solved it by accident, right? Mm-hmm. So like lo- looking at this laser eraser is sort of like looking at the last movie with special effects before CGI came around, right? It's just like... This is flawless, but it's kind of pointless. <laughs> We're going to move in a different direction, but you kind of have to respect that that sort of last, last yeah. you know. It's like the stop motion animators on Jurassic Park. Yeah. But it's still easy to respect the craft. I don't know much about the laser typo <laughs> deleter, uh, what, the, what the craftsmanship was there. But yeah, I understand the, the sentiment. So, okay, you are also a designer and you care about the way that things look that you've put out into the world. And not only do you have this ridiculous archive of words and photos, but now you got to lay it out. Tell me a little bit about how you designed this physical thing. I got to imagine you aren't an expert typesetter. Maybe you had help, but just looking through the photos, like the composition page by page is beautiful. So how did you learn this or how did you find help? Or yeah, walk me through the physical creation here. Yeah, so I think it was just a bunch of things coming together. I think the the big one, I've approached this book very much like I approach software projects or like giving talks or little, you know, side projects in JavaScript, which is everything's always happening at the same time, right? Which is like you write down the idea or um, an agenda for a talk or an outline for a talk, I guess. And and then you like think about it a little bit and then you jump into Keynote or Figma and make some slides and see where they take you. And then you alternate and then you, maybe you practice a little bit, see what turn of phrase like kind of gets you excited. And, and so the book was kind of the same thing, which is obviously I had to write something and, and I did. But like the moment I had like a bunch of words, I'm going to get a printed prototype from Lulu or one of those companies. I'm going to see how it feels. And I'm going to like, you know, choose the first typeface I can think of and, and see. And, and I ended up with, you know, probably like 12 or 13 prototypes over the course of, of this, which took a while, right? But that's the way I learned and the way like that was important to me. And the very moment I could, I started adding photos because again, I wanted to fill out what's the... Kind of visual vocabulary of the book, what what feels right, and 
Yeah, the, the very early attempts, they just look bad, right? It's like, it's not even funny how like a lot of blind alleys I took. And, and the second part was basically just like asking people who know this for feedback, right? Like, I, I, and I think to me, the way I operate is, I'm not going to like research something a lot and just figure it out on my head. I'm going to like try to make it happen. And I'm going to ask people what they think rather than like ask proactively, like how does one typeset a book? So that works for me. And I hope it works for others. I mean, some people, I think, were like pretty disappointed at the kind of like very rudimentary mistakes I made, even like late in the process, right? Like that's not how you write a book, but that's the way I wanted to do it. And especially like at the moment I, and it wasn't a moment, of course, it was a year, but that year when I realized I'm going to self-publish, it it started feeling kind of like, oh, I'm really, I can do whatever I want. Yeah. No so, rules, yeah. you know, so for example, like the book, and this is going to sound really funny, the book has like a cold open. You open a book and it just starts. There's no front matter. There's no like dedicated to this person. There's no acknowledgements. Acknowledgements, I, I did something creative with them in the middle of the book. The book just starts because I've always just wanted to try it. You start the first chapter ends and there's a title like in a TV show, which, you know, maybe it's laughable if you know anything about bookmaking, but I just wanted to try it. The table of contents at the end because that's how it is in Europe and I... They just make sense to me, right? I, there, so there's like a bit of Europe, a bit of America, a bit of sort of different media in it. And even, you know, that I kind of resurrected the typeface from like old mechanical keyboards and, and typewriters, uh, which was the sort of like the, the font that was used in like the CNC router or some machine that was just like carving the letters in the keys. And it actually was like never officially digitized. Oh, wow. So I digitized it. Okay, no big deal. But, but you know, the, no, it's actually, you know, like I'm, uh, every, every typographer now is like rolling their eyes because it's like, oh my God, you're, you're diminishing our you know, work. I'm not, I'm trying really hard not to. It's a very bad looking font. It's a very simple font. It's all like one thickness. It, I couldn't have even attempted it. It was like a real font. But since it was this very strange, very utilitarian kind of, you know, you see it at doorbells around the country. You see it at like, you know, different machines. And since it exists in a lot of keyboards, I thought that would be a, an interesting thing to do. And even though it's like not an attractive typeface, right? But it sort of felt the right thing for the project. Um, it, there was also this like sort of interesting negotiation for me because, you know, a lot of what I'm talking about is sort of like the, you know, I don't know what I'm doing dog meme, you know, like this kind <laughs> of the keyboard, yeah, yeah. guy comes around and, and tries to like do whatever. And, and I think that's kind of true. And the one thing I learned about typography or internalized about typography from being at Medium and at Figma is how typography has like infinite amount of stories and context and legacy, right? And you can kind of almost become suffocated by it. Right? Because there's just like there's always gonna be one more scary word to learn, one more like, obscure font that's important, one more tradition. And at the same time, you like especially at Figma and at Medium, to some extent, like you're also like responsible to like moving it forward, right? So so you, it's kind of like your job to to negotiate with like, hey, maybe some of this stuff, maybe we could let it go. Like maybe words like bastards or widows or orphans are like maybe not as cool anymore. <laughs> you know, maybe we can change. Like there was actually like some, some conversation with at Figma when we were naming things in like the typography panel. Or maybe some of the things that are, you have to learn years, maybe they're kind of like a form of gatekeeping, right? And not really like, uh, so So I, I think in this book, I, I kind of gave myself permission to like, yeah, I'm going to like, 
it's okay to mess with some things as long as I kind of respect a lot of other things. And I, at least that's what I've been trying to do. I've been really inspired by like other historians, like both like professional academic historians or people who try to tell stories on YouTube, you know, like gaming histories or 80s computers histories. And I think there's like a lot of inspiration from either side. And it's and the same about, should I publish it with a publisher the traditional way, which feels, you know, like a nice achievement, it's like how things have always been done. And should I self-publish? And to be perfectly honest, like all of those things, they were messy, they were scary and they were hard. Like what, some of the hard parts about this project was just like finding like, what is my way of doing it? Because any way can actually happen. Nobody's telling me, you know, nobody's telling me what, what is the right way. And I think it's the same with a website, which I know you wanted to talk about, which is, I'm proud of a website. Uh, it has a lot of fun things that are there for specific reasons or because I just felt like they were fun. Again, sometimes hard to know. But also, like, if you view source on this website, I don't think anybody's going to be impressed. For many, many years, it's, it's basically raw HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, which is how I've always done things. And I've always been pretty insecure about, like, should I be using React? Should I be using... What is the text pack? Are you I don't using the latest JavaScript bundler? <laughs> Am I using yeah. the yeah GSM, JSM? I actually had to go out of my way not to use a package manager because 3JS comes, something like this. So yeah. again, yeah. and I don't know, like it, it feels like on a sunny day, it feels like, look how fast this website loads. <laughs> like, isn't that what matters? On, on a really bad day, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I have to do dark mode now, you know, or like <laughs> how many responsive notches, yeah. like, you know, Websites have become much more complicated, right? Since I remember, like you have to do touch, you have to do responsive, you have to do dark mode, you have to, like with 3JS, which I have for this like book visualization, I actually never managed to make it work on iOS. I know it's possible. I bounce off of the limits of like the time and I could spend on this. So at the same time, you know, I, I like, it's again, this extension of my, the way I've learned to prototype and design things in code, which is like, it's very important for me to have like absolute control over everything under the hood because that always comes back and helps me. Like, like I'm still a little bit annoyed and I understand the value of React and I'm actually not an expert in React, so I can't really say as much about like what React gives people because mostly engineers could deal with it at Figma. But I see the value in React sort of keeping state and all of that good stuff, but I'm still annoyed by how hard it is to make like a simple transition in React. And there are moments when you use Figma where we couldn't get it right and they bother me every day. But like doing it, you know, just like a little transition that's like a little bit off, but like doing it the right way would mean we go against React and then it would become much more complicated to maintain, which is also something you have to think about. The same with like underlines at medium, like there, there's a point probably where you like, hey, this is too much. Who's gonna keep it alive after you're gone? <laughs> Who's going to deal with the spaghetti code that we just wrote? Good luck. Exactly, right? So so I think that kind of negotiation with like, what's the craft and the the beauty and this inventiveness or whatever you want to call it. And sometimes it's really just like, just getting stuck, you know, like I would like to say that like the underlines at Medium was like divine, like, oh, I just needed to make perfect underlines. It was just like, I can't, I have to figure it now. Like I can't go to sleep if I don't, which is a form of obsession. I'm, I'm not saying it's very healthy, at times, uh, the same with the book, right? Like, uh, like I have to finish this thing, even though there were moments where it felt unfinishable. Yeah, well, that's what surprises me to hear you say, because I imagine if I put myself in your shoes, 
I have created this artifact, right? You've done the, the history, you've now done the composition, you're going to figure out how to print it. Okay, we got to put up a website. My intuition is, here's a picture of the book, here's a little blurb about it, some pictures of the inside, and here's a button to, to buy it or pre-order it, right? And yet, the further I scrolled down your page, we encounter a game where you can arrange a keyboard for memory. And I'm like, oh, that, that's, that's really fun. This is cute. And then I get to the next section, and there's another game. And then I get to the next section, and it just keeps on going. So I don't know, how, how do you... It's hard to even ask the question now that we've had this conversation, like clearly this is your personality and the way that you like to express your your work, but how did you know when to stop or why did you keep adding all of these things instead of just drawing a line in the sand? Yeah, so there are more games that I haven't put there. I think if you... Of course there are. Because <laughs> I want to like release them throughout the month when a Kickstarter is running because apparently that's what you do. The funny thing is like, I think if you look at the code, they're all commented out. So you can actually, to the listener, oh, if you view yeah. source, there are like at least two things there that you can resurrect if you want to. Because I, again, <laughs> I just commented out in VS Code because that was like the simplest thing to do. I didn't do like a package manager on this. But no, I mean, to me, like, obviously there's time limits, right? And I, and I think the book really gave me this opportunity to practice that because you know, I've been working on this for years. And at some point, I hired an editor, uh, Glenn Fleischman, really great guy, who I started asking, like, for deadlines, right? And and because I knew, like, that without the deadlines, I will just forever tinker. Because tinkering is fun for me. Like, the details, you know, if you look at any of the, like, Figma, small details launches, that's a lot of me because that's the thing I gravitate to, right? Fortunately, there are other people in Figma who do other things. So it's not just, like, million details and nothing else because uh, there needs to be a good diet of all of these things combined, right? But I just love details. I love polishing things. I love sort of like fine-tuning one extra thing. That's, that's as you said, kind of my personality. I'm not even going to attempt to say like, why is it that way? I'm not like a big thinker. I'm not like an entrepreneur. I just do details, right? And, and even a specific kind of details. So that resonated with me. But yeah, there was, there was definitely like a set of deadlines. But also for me, and I think this book, if you click through, there's a sub page that's called my book and what it means to me. And if anybody's kind of listening to this and, and, and wants to, I, I, I try to write about like the creative process of, of writing that book. And I think to me, a lot of it was, I just want, I mean, as cheesy as it sounds, the journey is the reward, right? Like, I hope the Kickstarter goes well. I hope we hit the goal and that the book comes out sort of late in the year. Maybe it won't, but I wanted to enjoy like whatever happened up until that point, because I know like the end of any big creative project is actually kind of hard. It, it's actually kind of might not be as pleasant. There's not going to be this kind of like, oh my God, I'm an author now. I'm amazing, right? Look, mom, like your son has a bookshelf of books, you know, like, no, it's going to be like hollow and weird. And it's going to be this one review of somebody who doesn't like it. And it's going to like stick with me. Right. And and then my, ident my identity is going to be like, okay, what's next, right? Like, I don't, how do I, you know, second system syndrome, all of that stuff. But in the process of working on this book, I just wanted to like try different things, learn different things, like learn how to interview people, learn how to typeset, learn how to revive a typeface, learn how to use 3JS, which honestly almost killed me, like in a figurative sense. <laughs> um, learn how to like do a live stream, learn uh -huh. how to 
travel for research, learn how to take photos of keyboards, which is super specific <laughs> skill. Um, you know, like all of those things. And that's just enjoyable, right? Like I like that. I like that I will maybe the next creative projects, I will take some of those things and reconfigure them and build on top of that. And I think that's that's how I always look at that, right? I wouldn't have attempted recreating this font if not for like working at Medium and learning about typography and engineering from people who are better than this than I am. And maybe I wouldn't attempt this book if I hadn't written some stuff, but also haven't given some talks or maybe haven't volunteered at the Computer History Museum, right? So it's always just sort of like looking at what I've done before and then seeing like, okay, what's kind of next that will push me to learn, but also what's built on that some foundation because you have to have something when things go badly, right? You have to, like my, my theory is that like you have to, for any creative projects, you have to find what you're good at and what you're not good at and kind of like try to mix them together in some way. Because what you're not good at is going to be exciting and you're going to like find new things and you're going to like, things will keep fresh and you're going to learn new things, meet new people, try new things. But what you're already good at is important because like otherwise you're just floating and you you have nothing to feel proud of. And I think to me, that's that's like an important component, right? So like, I'm not saying this was like a like an asana board. Some of it is very instinctive, but I think I developed that sort of like skill. And I would recommend it if, if that resonates with people. What you just described about mixing what you're good at and what you're not good at, I feel like could be a whole other episode because I think there's something profound there about how to break through plateaus and how to get comfortable with learning new things. I think I don't know. There's also different schools of thought about just doing the things that you're good at and let other people fill in the gaps. And that's why we have teams. And I don't know, there's different philosophies on that, which we could probably spend a whole other hour talking about. Yeah. I mean, there was, to to give one example, there was like one moment where I felt pretty low about the book, right? I felt like this is taking forever. I don't really have a good line side towards publishing. Well, what should I do? I should give a talk about some of the things I learned because I enjoy doing that. Right. And I think I like doing that. And I think I'm somewhat good at doing that to some extent. And I did that. And it was like rejuvenating because I was like, oh, I can bring something that I already know. And at the same time, uh, just to keep things interesting, I decided that I wanted to fulfill my life's dream, quote unquote, of I've always wanted to give a talk where I change the slides and nobody knows how I do that, which I don't know why I wanted the slides to appear as I thought about them because that's what they're supposed to do, right? They're, they're supposed to like come out of your head like the words, except it's not possible. So I actually built a keyboard that I put in my shoe <laughs> that I could use my toes <laughs> to tap as I'm speaking, which works surprisingly well. And I use Arduino and I soldered things together and I put a battery there that I had to... Yeah, of course, yeah, as one yeah. does. As one, yeah. yeah and it, it, But it's like... <laughs> That was like the fun way to, again, try to inject some energy into this project in a way. And of course, that's also how this project ended up being seven years and not three. But, you know, maybe there wasn't, there was never an option to have it go for three years, right? It was seven or nothing, seven or giving up at some point. Yeah. You know, okay. I One more question, then we got to, I want to get to a couple more things. But how do you keep that, like, playful attitude. I don't know. I feel like the longer I, I work in tech and design products, like I devolve further and further into pragmatism. Like, I don't know if it's, it's maybe I'm doing like early stage startup stuff or, or I like the zero to one, but I find like, I don't know, it would just be way more pragmatic to click a button on a clicker instead of building this thing in your shoe 
But of course, building the thing in your shoe is way more fun and is a better story and like has this playfulness to it. Has that come natural to you or do you have to do something to keep that hacker, that playful spirit alive? Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I can actually get like pretty real about this. I don't know if you'd like me to because I, I don't actually think it's all very positive, right? Like I, I think there's like, sometimes it is kind of obsessive. It's like sometimes I I don't know how to turn it off, right? And and maybe the, the remote in the show is like a good story, but you know, maybe maybe I was kind of stressed out for two weeks there. I don't actually remember. So I think to the extent I'm in control of this, I try to like surround myself with people who are not like as jaded as I could easily be. And I try to sort of like celebrate that. I actually have, you know, as again, as sort of like cheesy as it sounds, I every Friday after work, I write down what I'm proud of at work or otherwise. And some of those things are sort of celebrating like, I don't know if it's playfulness or quote unquote creativity or like trying something new or pushing for something. At the same time, sort of understanding that sometimes you don't, you know, and and at the same time, like I think humor is in general, like a, a very interesting subject for me, which I've actually studied a lot, which is funny because like, wait, humor is just you being funny, right? It's like, no, no, humor is like a complex thing. If you if you read comedians, right? If you interviews with comedians and stuff, there's obviously the science of humor. There's obviously the sort of like um, the formality. Like there's there's a lot of stuff going on and, and you, you can become more funny if you want to. But there's also this like other thing of like, on one hand, humor can be disarming, can bring people together, can, you know, get people through hard times. But it can also be annoying, right? It can also be like, why is this guy funny again? Why is he cracking a joke? This is like a pretty serious situation. Like, so I don't know. It's like this constant negotiation of like pushing and pulling and listening for feedback. And it's pretty obvious as a designer, like feedback is the currency, right? Like feedback is how we operate. Basically just like listening to feedback, soliciting feedback. My editor, for example, gave me a lot of really hard feedback over the years, which was like incredibly unpleasant to receive. And I took personally, I'm not going to lie. There were moments where I didn't handle it very well because this book is incredibly personal to me, but I I needed to seek it out. And I kept asking him for more and more feedback, right? And, and so I think like, I don't know if I have a framework as much as maybe one of them is like, I treat fun pretty seriously, uh, they're at least in moments, right? Like if you if you listen to Weird Al Yankovic talk about humor or Key and Peele or who are the magicians in Las Vegas, uh, Penn and Teller, you know, it's not humor, it's magic, but like the way they talk about it and the way they like treat it as like an incredibly serious thing that that is going to feel lightweight, right? So, so there's some of it definitely that like resonates with me. Like none of this creativity, none of this like quote unquote playfulness is free, right? I I think you have to like work on it. And that's what I'm attempting to do. And I I hope recognizing in other people, like for example, like the, how it manifested at work was we have playgrounds at Figma, which are those files that we sometimes launch with features or outside of features where we just want people to quote unquote play with something new in a way that's like, it's not like reading a document, it's actually using it. And that was for us, uh, for many years, like a very deliberate practice of we have documents saying like, what is the role of playgrounds? And even though it's like play in the end, we actually have conversation about like, what is sort of the narrative structure of this playground? What is the visual, like, you know, all of those things. Um, So I don't know. I hope this is not like a disappointing (laughs) answer in a way. Um, I think it's it's very honest and it's a good, it's a reminder that, yeah, I I loved what you said. Like the playfulness isn't free. Like there is painstaking thought and consideration and we get to enjoy it 
um, yeah. and rarely peek behind the curtain and see what went into it. Yeah, and 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 I'm gonna admit something that uh, that I think people who work with me know. Like I'm not, I can get like really insecure as a designer because I'm not good at many things that designers are good at, like craft in terms of like gestalt and sort of palettes and visual stuff. And like I've never practiced that enough. Like well, if I was ever okay at it, that ship sailed a long time ago, right? I'm good at like maybe interactive craft, maybe programmatic stuff. And so like to me, some of those things like playfulness, like humor more and more kind of writing and storytelling, that's sort of the same, the version of that, right? That's sort of like where the craft comes. And I'm hoping to just surround myself with like other people who are good at like other sides of craft that I might never again be good at if I ever was. And I think that's sort of like the beauty of working with other people where you can find inspiration in other people and hopefully maybe bring some in like how you treat humor or storytelling and whatnot. Yeah, that's been my unlock is just finding people who inspire me and and feel like like we can complement each other. Truly, the thing we create together is better than what we would have created individually. Mine would have been too pragmatic and cold. Theirs would have been too Uh impractical and and bouncy, Uh but you meet those two things in the middle and I don't know, delight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah, don't get started on the. We can talk about delight for half an hour. That's the word that itself. <laughs> yeah. We can go uh, deep. Yeah. You know, maybe we should at some point, but <laughs> at uh, we'll try and keep this. You know, we, we, I told you we wouldn't be able to get this in the time we allotted. So let's do this. At the time that people are hearing this, your Kickstarter is live. What's the call to action here? How can people learn more about Shift Happens, the book about keyboards? Yeah, I think you can, you know, search for it on Kickstarter or you can go to the website we talked about, which is shifthappens.site. They're all heavily cross-linked as, as one does for good SEO. The call to action, yeah, check it out. If, if this book seems interesting to you or anybody who you might love, click whatever your heart desires. <laughs> Um, look for the buds in the sidebar that say look, buy look for the, the book different tiers cover your yeah. mouse click yeah. one of them <laughs> you know honestly yeah if it doesn't that's okay too like I, I i think a lot of creative people are listening to this i think check out the about the book and what it means to me page which i hope we can cross link somehow because link in the show notes yep yeah i'm actually curious if like does this resonate with you like is any of this you know, one of the big parts of the book that I have written down that I've always wanted to do, I wrote something like, weird is better than boring. And, you know, if that like, if that's something, if that's how you live your life, you know, message me <laughs> or something. Uh-huh. I don't know, like that, that itself, I hope maybe it's interesting or if you disagree with something, let me know. I'm also very curious to hear. Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, I love it. Well, Martin, I'm this has been a joyful conversation. Uh, it's not over yet, but thank you for talking about <laughs> the book, how it got here. Yeah. To everyone listening, link in the show notes to the Kickstarter and to the website, which everyone must look at because it's beautiful yes. and fun. Very fun. Shall we do cool things? All right. My cool thing this week is really the culmination of a long evolution, you know, of a, of a long process of finding the right combination of things to help me sleep. I have added a weighted blanket. I started listening to like spa music when I went to sleep. Recently, my partner gave me a sleep mask, which feels ridiculous, but also is amazing. Um, sleep masks are where it's at, man. I'm with you on those. Yeah. Okay. So I, I was like, I want to combine these things. Like I have my Apple AirPods, but then like they fall out and I have to fish them out of the bed sheets every morning because it's like white <laughs> on white bed sheets. So they're impossible to find. And also laying on my side, I'm a side sleeper, so they kind of dig into your ear if 
pillow presses them in. So I found this sleep mask on Amazon. It was like 30 bucks or whatever, but it's a padded sleep mask that has built-in flat headphones, Bluetooth. Link in the show notes, obviously. But this is my new thing. I look forward to going to bed now, Brian. I'm like, ah, I'm going to shut out the world, like full on pure blackness. And it's soft and padded. It even has like little scooped out cups for your eyelashes. So your eyelashes aren't flapping against the front of it. Um, yeah, with controls for volume and everything. Again, link in the show notes. But the, the, there's a million of it. I think like one manufacturer makes this thing and like a thousand people slap their logo on it. So um, it doesn't really matter which one you buy. But the functionality of headphones that I'm just listening to someone talk like in headspace or listening to spa music. It doesn't have to be super high audiophile quality and it isn't, but it's perfect for the use case. And uh, yeah, it's helped me go to sleep for the past like couple of weeks. I've been really enjoying it. Love it. I can just picture you fully tucked in. You got the weighted uh, blanket, <laughs> the eye mask. Uh-huh. It's a routine, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. I get out all my paraphernalia. And... It's how you stay looking so young all these years, my friend. Yeah. It's my beauty sleep. Gotta yeah. Be. Yeah. Well, I haven't been getting sleep. Maybe this is going to make me look old. Like I just haven't slept the first 40 years of my life. Maybe this is going to ruin me. <laughs> I I don't think that's how it works, but hopefully okay. not. All right. Cool. That's cool my cool thing. thing. What's yours, Brian? Uh, mine is a browser extension that was recently relaunched. It's called Minimal Twitter. I think they're on version two now. It's a browser extension that is owned by the Typefully crew. If you haven't heard of Typefully, it's a nice app for composing tweets and managing, I don't know, looking at Twitter analytics and that kind of thing. Anyways, they make this browser extension called Minimal Twitter. And gosh dang it, guys, I can't use Twitter.com without it. It is perfecto. And what they did in V2 here, as I'm recording, I'll open up the settings. Here are things you can adjust on Twitter.com, the website. You can adjust the timeline width. You can add and remove borders. You can add and remove sticky headers. You can turn off trends. You can turn off recent media showing up at the top of profiles. You can hide vanity counts like the like count or view count. You can remove promoted posts. You can remove posts that tell you who to follow. You can remove topics. You can remove certain tabs. You can rearrange the navigation. You can hide the labels on navigation. You can change the font. Ooh. And on and on and on. There's all these widgets and dials, and it's very nicely designed. It changes inline as you click on things. And I am, uh, yeah, can't go back using it right now. So that's my cool thing, minimal Twitter, and it's free, just oh, an extension. Yeah. Should it be free? That's also another, should designers code slash should it be free? It is a, um, I think it's product marketing for Typefully, which is a paid product. Yeah. All right, Martin, um, what you got? Yeah, I have something very different, but uh, it's been in my head since I uh, stopped watching it. So there's a TV show. It's called, well, I think it's called Kevin Can F Himself, but it's, you know, it's Kevin Can Fuck Himself. It's unfortunate. It's hard to talk about it without spoiling the gimmick, but also like the gimmick is spoiled in the first three minutes. And I love a good gimmick. Like I actually, I think like sort of the art and science of gimmicks is like its own thing that we could also talk about because I think I wouldn't dismiss gimmicks. They serve a purpose. But anyway, the whole premise of the show is that it sort of starts like as a sitcom with a laugh track, multi-camera. It's like this, 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 you know, high saturated palette. And there's this family in the house with this, including this guy who's just like larger than life, kind of like fun, you know, like a traditional setup. This is, by the way, a new TV show. 
But the moment the guy exits the picture, it switches to like a drama, single camera, like the palette changes, the music changes, the mood changes, and it becomes very real. And it's funny how it sounds, A, like it wouldn't work, and it actually works really well. And B, it sounds like, oh, it's just like somebody's like sort of, you know, art film, like student film school idea. But it's actually put to like a really good use in sort of like commenting on how we consume media and how it changes, how we perceive things. Like that guy who seems so funny, like the moment we don't look at him in the lens of a sitcom, he's just like an asshole. And the, the show, I think, is like really feminist as well, because like usually like in those sitcoms is women who are mistreated or I don't know if still are, but, you know, like 10, 20, 30 years ago, definitely those sitcoms, like they were just like not very good for for women. So it's like a surprisingly deep show, at least I found. I think it's built as dark comedy. So I don't know if it like works for everybody. It, and it's definitely not perfect, but I was surprised how like it stuck with me and how I kept thinking about it because it's sort of like a meta commentary on television and sort of narrative devices and how things change and how just the fact that something is on TV, which of course used to be much more homogeneic, like how it shapes us, right? Like how television has this pull on us and, and how the sort of like storytelling devices that TV employed or movies before, they can like change how we see things. And I think there's like something really worth thinking about. So I was surprised how much I liked it. Um, I really just picked it up for the gimmick and it really like stuck with me and I kind of want to watch it again at some point. Great. Where where can people stream this? What service is it on? I think it's on AMC or AMC Plus or one of those. Great. Link in the show notes as always. Great. Yeah. Excellent. Cool things, everybody. Well done. All right. Well, this has been a, a, a pleasure, Martin. Thank you for yes. coming on Thank the you. show. And telling us yes, thank you. Uh, stories and uh, giving us insight into how you have created something beautiful. So good luck with the Kickstarter and the book launch. Thank you. Hope it is Thanks going so well at the time that people are listening to this. Yes. Uh, everyone click the link in the show notes. And I guess that's it. We'll catch you over in our Patreon sidebar. 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 <laughs> and that's it. This has been episode 455 of the Design Details Podcast. Don't forget there's a whole other half of this interview over on patreon at patreon.com slash design details where you get the bonus content the second half of the interview a long conversation with martin for just a buck a month is it just a dollar a month that's crazy. it's just live from san francisco breaking news just a dollar a month i don't know <laughs> i'm keeping it i should have i should have leaned in more but i kind of got cold feet halfway through the bit all right <laughs> If you enjoyed the interview, be sure to check out Martin's book, Shift Happens, on Kickstarter. Tweet at Martin or tweet at us. We like to hear from you as well. We're at Design Details FM on the tweets. That's it. We'll catch you in the sidebar and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody.
All right. Cool things. Would you prefer that we go first with our cool things and break the ice for it, or you, you want to start? No, I think you should go. So I can change right. my mind if I'm really off base. <laughs> uh, Marshall, you're up first since you've been quiet. The quieter, quietest of the three. I'm the Ed McMahon to your Johnny Carson, Brian. There you go. 